0: Working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana.
1: And financially supported by listeners like you.
3: Good morning and welcome to Eco Report. For WFHB, I'm Linda Leitner.
1: And I'm Glenn Leitner. Almost 1,200 people are being forced to permanently move from their homes in East Chicago after soil in the area was found to contain dangerously high levels of lead and arsenic. The Anaconda Petroleum Company, which had a plant on the site, is responsible for the contamination. Many of the affected residents live in public housing. Eco Report editor, editor Aaron Comforty interviewed Sylvia Ogar, an organizer of the Poison Soil Forum that will take place at Indiana University this Saturday.
2: Welcome, Sylvia Ogart, to Eco Report. Thanks for talking with us today. Maybe you could start by telling us a little bit about the Lead Contamination Forum that's going on on Saturday.
4: Okay. Well, basically, the forum is um, presented by SA, SV, Students Against State Violence, and Grow Med, and Gary Lawrence, and We're All coming together to make an informative forum about the lead and arsenic levels in neighborhoods in East Chicago, specifically Calumet City. There's going to be a lot of parts where everyone can get involved and, you know, ask questions, you know, because I feel like people are very ill-informed about the subject, so it'll be really helpful to get hands-on.
2: So what exactly is going on in East Chicago?
4: Essentially, um, the soil levels in the area were tested, and there were high levels of lead and arsenic, and the EPA actually got involved, which many people don't really know that it was that much of a crisis that the EPA actually put up signs in the soil that people shouldn't play in the soil and the mulch. People were actually asked by the government to send in soil samples from their neighborhoods, Uh, to check out what's going on. And a lot of people didn't even get um, informed about it directly. They got letters in the mail.
2: How is the situation affecting the residents of East Chicago?
4: Well, I think it's just very frustrating because um, Mayor Anthony issued an order of relocation. So imagine randomly getting a letter in the mail that you are endangered because of your surroundings, because of the earth around you, and you can't even comfortably, you know, children can't comfortably play outside after school, things like that, and you just have to move.
2: East Chicago, it's in the region. It's in the quote region, right? Part of yeah,
4: Indiana. it is. It is and
2: a large portion of East Chicago are Black residents.
4: Yes, it
2: is, and that's really important. Um, in contextualizing uh, what's going on. Do you want to speak to that at all?
4: Yes. Essentially, I feel like a lot of cities in Northwest Indiana are neglected. East Chicago, Hammond, Gary, Michigan City, they're all, um, you know, of the same demographics. So, a lot of times, I feel like when crises happen in areas like him in East Chicago, Michigan City, it's not, you know, something that's really widely broadcasted, and it's not inherent. It's not something that people jump to, whereas if it happened somewhere else, people would jump
3: to it more quickly.
1: That was Sylvia Ogard, organizer of the Poison Soil Forum.
3: And in more Indiana news... State Senate Bill 420 may be brought before the State Senate today. The bill would set aside 10% of public state forests as no logging zones. To get some perspective, EcoReport reached out to Hartwood Council Chair Mike Lertsema.
5: So SB 420 is, um, I think they're calling it the Old Forest Areas Bill, uh, which if passed, would require the Division of Forestry to set aside 10% of each state forest uh, from logging. I know Indiana Forest Alliance has been really active on that, and um, some, I know Hoochie Environmental Council, and I think um, possibly Hoochie Chapter CR Clubs also um, had some input on that as well. Uh, there's a tremendous showing at the hearing last last week. Um, but then this week, there's a big rally that I think I heard 700 people were at. Hartwood uh, has supported this bill with some hesitation because we don't think 10% is enough. Hartwood has a zero cut policy on public forests. There's not much public forest acreage in the eastern part of the US. So but we do support the bill because we see it as an important first step. uh, Because as of now, if nothing happens, then the last and wildest areas of our state forests in Indiana are going to be wiped out in the next five to 10 years. the state forests in Indiana represent 3% of all forest land in Indiana. 3% of all forest land. 3%. For us, like, people ask, well, you we need to compromise, you need to compromise. It's like we're asking for, like, Indiana, the, 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 this bill is asking for 10% of 3%, right? I'm asking for 3%. So, so I think we're coming from a very reasonable position.
3: That was Hartwood Council Chair Mike Lertzema about State Senate Bill 420. We'll hear more from Lertzema later in the show.
1: In national news, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, or NRC, wants to license waste control specialists in Andrew County, Texas, to expand its present hazardous waste dump to accept high-level radioactive waste from nuclear power plants throughout the country. What the NRC is calling a consolidated interim storage dump would actually be permanent. It would require thousands of shipments of 40,000 tons of cancer-causing irradiated spent fuel rods to be transported to Texas on trains, trucks, and barges throughout the country. The dump hasn't been designed or assessed for permanently isolating radioactive waste. An element of environmental injustice also comes into play. The communities around the dump are largely poor and Latino, lacking the resources to oppose a national radioactive waste dump. Further, the dump is near the Ogallala Aquifer, which supplies drinking water to millions of people in the central U.S. Dumping fuel rods in Texas would absolve the nuclear industry from responsibility for managing the waste it creates.
3: On February 7th, Seattle divested from Wells Fargo, one of the banks financing the Dakota Access Pipeline. Seattle has about $3 billion in its account with the bank. The decision makes Seattle the first U.S. city to divest from a bank because of its role in funding the pipeline. Wells Fargo is one of 17 banks funding the project. Minneapolis is thinking about divesting from banks that finance the pipeline and other destructive environmental projects. Other cities are contemplating a similar move. They include Boulder, Colorado, Santa Fe, New Mexico, and Portland, Oregon. On January 31st, Boulder's city council voted to look into alternatives to banking with JP Morgan Chase, which is also financing the pipeline. The div- divestment movement has begun to take root with tribes and universities as well as cities. Meanwhile, the Army Corps of Engineers had decided not to prepare an environmental impact statement on the pipeline and has given the go-ahead for its completion.
1: On Tuesday, law enforcement officially closed one of the main Dakota Access pipeline resistance camps in North Dakota. The Aka Ichi Shakawin Camp, or Achi for short, law enforcement threatened to arrest anyone who refused to leave the camp and threatened to charge them with a felony. The closure came as the camp was in the midst of a camp-wide intensive cleaning operation that aimed to ensure that no debris from the camp polluted the Cannonball or Sacred Stone River. To get an update on the situation, Eco Report. Editor Aaron Comforty spoke by phone with Connor Tracy, who is currently at the Sacred Stone camp.
6: In my perspective from the Sacred Stone medical tent on the south side of the river, generally, from what I saw and heard, O'Chetti was given initially the 2 p.m. deadline, and as that approached, it was, quote-unquote, extended till 4. Basically, that just meant, like, They were letting people out who were on a prayer walk, essentially trying to, like, exit and, like, get their buses out, large vehicles, people who were trying to, like, exit in a prayerful manner. There were a number of fires um, set at Ochetti. mainly, I would say, like, just to, like, avoid leaving trash behind. Um, So a lot of the structures were taken down. Set on fire last night and this morning.
2: The authorities were set to raid Osheti camp. Who were the authorities, and did anyone try to stay in the camp?
6: As far as I know, the authorities didn't actually come in. Or, I mean, you could say it was an issue of a threshold. There was like essentially like people who were willing to undergo voluntary arrest went up to the highway, where there was a line of law enforcement vehicles. I don't know how many cars, many, many, many. I do know that there have been arrests made. There, I think there's like a negative media spin really kind of getting pushed now that, you know, like Sanding Rock has turned a little bit more violent or something. To my experience, it, it never has been and it sure isn't now. There's people hauling each other out of snowbanks and and helping each other out of there and some people have been staying there.
3: On the morning of February 12th, wind power provided 52.1 percent of the electricity for the 14-state grid known as the Southwest Power Pool. This is a significant milestone for wind, which has never before provided a majority of power for any U.S. grid. The Southwest Power Pool serves millions of customers. Their headquarters are in Little Rock, Arkansas, and they are responsible for 60,000 miles of power lines running from North Dakota and Montana to Texas, New Mexico, and Louisiana. Much of the power generated from wind is transmitted by high-voltage DC power. Greg Alvarez of the American Wind Energy Association celebrated the news in a blog post. Records like these, he wrote, resonate because they demonstrate that wind energy can play a key role in an affordable, reliable, diversified energy mix that creates a stronger system and helps keep more money in the pockets of families and businesses. The generating capacity of the Southwest Power Pool has several components, but is dominated by 42% gas, 31% coal, and 18% wind. On February 12th, most of the contribution to the grid came from wind for the very first time. And that's the news for this week. For EcoReport, I'm Linda Leitner.
1: And I'm Glenn Leitner. We'd love to hear from you. Contact us if you have any thoughts about stories we've aired or if you have any future story ideas. Please send emails to earth at wfhb.org.
3: EcoReport is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com.
1: This week's eco-feature, correspondent Aaron Comforty speaks with Mike Lertzema from the Hartwood Council about the group's efforts to save old-growth forests in Indiana.
2: So uh, maybe you could just say, uh, introduce yourself and say like what you do at Hartwood. Yeah, my name is Mike
5: Lertzema and I'm the council chair for Hartwood. Hartwood is a, a regional network of forest protection groups that goes from Missouri to Virginia, we cover 16 or more states in the eastern part of the United States, focusing on public forest protection, primarily national forests, but it also includes state forests. From primarily in Indiana, where the state forests are facing a bigger threat than than the Hoosier National Forest. The Hoosier National Forest is about 202,000 acres, and the Indiana State Forests all combined. Are about 150, 155,000 acres. The state forests are about 50,000 acres smaller, but they're logging twice as much. On the state forests right now, they're pulling out more timber than they were during the height of clear cutting on the Hoosier National Forest, which was in the 1970s and 1980s. But on the state forests, not doing as much clear cutting to meet this high timber quota as they were on the Hoosier then. So what that means is that the impact of these timber sales is much larger. So instead of completely devastating, completely wiping out one area for, you know, a really, 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 really long time, what's happening is that they are having major impacts across a much broader area. Like a term gets thrown around a lot by forest advocates is like, clear cutting and deforestation and so I think it's important for forest advocates to be careful in the language that we use because the DNR is clear cutting some areas of the state forest for sure but the vast majority of what they're doing is what they call single tree selection or selective cutting or group selection so these group selection trees which is where they take out like a a group of trees those can be you know an acre or two or five so it's like a small clear cut but it doesn't qualified by like their term as clear-cutting. And also, it's not deforestation in that they're not wiping out this forest to never be a forest again. The reason why I think it's important that we have that terminology correct is because if we use wrong terminology, we're more easily dismissed. But that doesn't make what they're doing any less devastating or any less harmful towards ecosystems. What they're doing is they're shifting the forest type at a rate and in a way that hasn't ever been done before in Indiana since the forests were first cleared by European settlers. Once the DNR logs an area of the state forest, it is still a forest, but it is a much younger forest. It's much more susceptible to things like non-native species. It's much more susceptible to erosion and also generalist species, wildlife species. So um, wildlife species that can thrive in any environment. And they're doing this at the expense Interior forest habitat, deep forest habitat. Indiana has an abundance of edge forests, an abundance of young forests, um, but we have a severe dearth of mature, interior, wild, deep forests. Many species rely on young forests, but we got a lot of those. We got a lot of young forests. We don't have a lot of old forests, which many other species rely on. Many of the species that thrive on younger forests also happen to be game species, most of which there's plenty of. Deer, there's too many deer, everybody can agree to that. And wild turkey, which there's plenty of wild turkey. Another species that you'll hear the DNR mention that we need more younger forests, or early successional is the term, is a rough grouse, uh, which is a game game bird, which in Indiana is endangered for sure, but it's not endangered throughout its range. Southern Indiana is just on the edge of the rough grouse range. And with climate change, studies have suggested that the rough grouse's range is moving north, like many other species. So because we're already on the southern edge of its range, should we be managing our forests to favor this species that might not be around here much longer anyway because of climate change? Or should we manage our forests to favor Non game species that require deep interior wild forest habitat, such as the cerulean warbler and various kinds of bats and other kinds of warblers, too, uh, not to mention salamanders and snakes and various insects and spiders and that sort of thing. So, by shifting the forest type and the forest structure and the forest stand age across the entire state forest system, the DNR is threatening the viability of interior forest species survival and successful reproduction in Indiana.
2: So I saw a quote from John Seifert that said that basically he said that there wasn't enough young forest. Why would John Seifert say that there wasn't enough young forest?
5: The DNR is really good at finding justifications for increased logging. So what has happened is that most of the state forests are 80 to 100 years old or were at one point, a lot of them have been selectively logged over the past 40 years. A lot of them have had you know, selective cutting here or there, but not at the rate that's happening now. What that has meant is that most of the state forests have been, up until recently, maturing second growth. So most of the trees were all more or less the same age. Um, well, the canopy trees were uh, more or less the same age across the state forest system. And so what that m- meant was that, when they say there's not enough young forests, that meant that there weren't, according to the DNR, enough new growth. So areas that are interior to forest, like interior openings within forests, like a place that would look like a tornado went through, or, or something like that, or windfall, that sort of thing. Because that starts like early successional, so it's like new young growth, young trees, that sort of thing. So the DNR will say, say like, oh, when they go in and they do a small clear-cut or patch-cut, that they're replicating that, and that's good habitat for a certain species, including, you know, rough grouse and deer or whatever. The thing is is that it doesn't replicate a tornado, it doesn't replicate windfall, because they're taking all those trees out. In the tornado, all those trees are still there. And, two, the infrastructure for that timber sale, including the roads and the logging yard, completely change the hydrology of the area Making more prone to erosion, opens up avenues for non-native species and everything else. A mature forest, a forest that is allowed to reach its full life cycle, has young forests. It has 300-year-old trees, but also has sections where there are natural openings. And if you walk through some of the oldest areas in the oldest forests in Indiana, you will see in the middle of these forests natural openings that are Large, where a huge tree fell down and took out all the trees below it. That looks a lot different than a patch cut or a clear cut. So it's not only that we need more early successional forests, more young forests that the DNR uses to justify cutting more. They'll also say things like, well, we're losing oak hickory. Oak hickory is is not regenerating because it's getting shaded out by beech and maple. So when you go in and take out all the beech and maple to favor oak and hickory, they use that to justify more logging. But the reason they want to favor oak and hickories because they have higher timber value. This need for younger forests is just part of their, their rhetoric for, to justify increased logging. They're really good at finding science to back up increased logging.
3: You're listening to EcoReport on WFHB, bringing you environmental watchdog reporting from South Central Indiana.
1: EcoReport is currently seeking volunteer journalists to contribute short weekly headlines about ecological issues from indigenous resistance to infrastructure projects to climate change and biological diversity. Commitment is light and you can set your own schedule. For more information, email us at earth at wfhb.org or call 812-323-1200. It's time now for In Nature, a segment focusing on the flora and fauna of south-central Indiana.
0: This is In Nature. Beech, Fagus grandifolia, is a common tree in our deciduous forests. In this area, the climax forest consists of beech and sugar maple, two trees that germinate well in dense shade. The beech prefers rich, well-drained soils. It can live for three to 400 years and often reaches 80 feet in height, with a diameter in excess of three feet. The canopy is wide and spreading, leaving open spaces well-shaded and park-like underneath. Seedlings grow from the shallow roots and can create dense thickets of young trees, among more mature ones. The beech has a distinctive thin gray bark that entices people to carve their names. It is easily scarred, and disease can enter these wounds and shorten the tree's life. The tree will often hold onto its leaves during the winter and can be easily spotted in the woods. The leaf bud is long and thin, and opens out to a thin, elliptical-shaped leaf with parallel veins and coarse teeth. They decompose slowly and thus make a deep layer of duff on the forest floor. The separate male and female flowers are small and inconspicuous, and bloom when the leaves are unfolding. Pollen from the male flower is blown by the wind onto the female flower, eventually forming a small nut encased in a spiny husk. Their abundant production of nuts every two or three years provides food for many animals of the forest, including squirrels, chipmunks, and raccoons. Humans, too, enjoy the sweet nut. It is also a wonderful denning tree since it forms cavities that can be used by many animals. You've been
3: listening to In Nature. And here's our weekly events calendar. The Bloomington Community Orchard is hosting a class on dormant pruning of fruit trees on Saturday, February 25th from 2 to 4 p.m. at 2120 South Highland Avenue in Bloomington. You will learn how to prune fruit trees in order to improve structure, growth, health, and production. The class is free. To register, go to the slash classes. Enjoy the 360
1: 360- degree view of Lake Monroe from Sycamore Land Trust's newest preserve, the Amy Weingartner Brannigan Peninsula Preserve, located on Rush Ridge Road off of State Road 446 in Bloomington on Sunday, February 26th from noon to 2 p.m. Meet at 1130 a.m. in the Blooming Foods East parking lot. Parking is limited and carpooling is encouraged.
3: Spring Mill State Park will host a Donaldson Cave hike on Sunday, February twenty sixth from ten to eleven thirty a.m. Take a trip to Indiana's most beautiful cave. Meet Wyatt in the upstairs lobby of the inn for this short rugged hike.
1: There will be a tree ID hike sponsored by the Hoosier National Forest at Spring Mill State Park on Saturday, February twenty-fifth from nine a.m. to noon. Hiking will be involved. There is a fee to participate contact Tina Ligman to register at 812-276-4757.
3: And Students Against State Violence is co-hosting a forum on lead contamination in East Chicago on Saturday, February 25th from 4 p.m. to 7 p.m. in the Student Building, room 150. That wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by Solar Systems of Indiana, designing and installing renewable energy systems. SSI is a member of the North American Board of Certified Energy Practitioners and works to foster the acceptance of solar energy across the Midwest through education and consultation. More information by phone at 812 336 2785 or online at solar-systems-of-indiana.com.
1: This week's news stories were written by Linda Green, Norm Holy, and Aaron Comforty, who also edited the script. The show featured interviews with Sylvia Ogar, Mike Lertzema, and Connor Tracy. Our events calendar was compiled by Juliana Daly. Our feature was produced by Aaron Comforty and Joe Crawford. Our executive producer is Joe Crawford. For WFHB, I'm Glenn Leitner.
3: And I'm Linda Leitner. Join us on Thursdays at 11.30 a.m. before Democracy Now! and on Fridays at 5 p.m. before Kite Line for our weekly radio rundown of ecological news and resistance. Until then, Eco Report encourages you to take direct action to defend the earth.
1: You've been listening to the Eco Report.
3: A
0: volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB.
2: In Bloomington, Indiana.
0: Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org.
2: EcoReport is your independent, ecologically inspired news source.
0: For South Central Indiana.
2: Bringing you news
1: that the earth wants you to hear.
0: Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas
1: directly to the Eco Report staff.
0: The email address is
1: earth at wfhb.org.
0: That's earth at wfhb.org.
7: This is WFHB Bloomington, Indiana, volunteer-powered community radio at 91.3 FM for South Central Indiana, also at 98.1 in Bloomington, 100.7 in Brown County, 106.3 in Ellettsville, and online at wfhb.org. It's 11.59 a.m. It's a uh, cool 67 degrees outside in downtown Bloomington going to be an overcast, uh, cloudy day, a high of 69 degrees or so, low of 59 tonight. And then tomorrow there is a chance of uh, thunderstorms, even potentially severe thunderstorms throughout the day. A high of 71 degrees is expected. Saturday, cloudy skies, uh, windy in the morning, a high of just 36. So it's going to cool down quite a bit over the weekend. Support for WFHB comes from Quarryland Men's Chorus. Celebrating their 15th season with their second annual cabaret and cabernet at uh, Oliver Winery. Hors d'oeuvres and board and blade catering and performances by QMC members and local celebrities. March 2nd, 2017, 7 to 9 p.m. Space is limited. Tickets at BCT box office from Quarryland members and at the door. More information at Quarryland.org. Stay tuned to WFHB, your community radio station. Up next is Democracy Now!